All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Fulcrum Global Podcast, where friends and peers get together to discuss and brainstorm on issues of national security, defense, intelligence, and foreign affairs. I'm Sam Kessler, and I'm very excited to be presenting our guest for today. His name is Max Daves, and I am excited to have him on. I have a little disclaimer, I've known him for a good while now. And uh, to give you an idea about what Max does is he is a co-founder, senior strategic analyst, and chief solutions innovator at Otho Advanced Intelligence. And one thing Max will tell you, his approach to the world of national security is very much uh, polymathic or outside the box, uh, multidisciplinary. And he goes about it in a very interesting way. So Max, thanks for being on the podcast show. Sam, it's good to be here and it's good to see you, brother. Yeah. So is there anything you want to add to your, your background just to give our audience a little bit of uh, detail about that before we get started or? I, I, you know me, man. I, I, I don't even like talking about that stuff. So I'll just trust you on it, man. You, you could field any questions anybody has. I mean, I think you pretty much nailed it. I mean, I work across a lot of buckets. I see defense, uh, you know, policy, strategy, innovation. I play in a lot of a lot of sandboxes, so to speak. All right. Well, well if we're going to talk about sandboxes, um, one thing you always like to say is to when people are zigging, you want to zag. And when others are zagging, they want to zig. So what exactly does that mean? And how does that play to the world of national security? Sure. Well, you know, when you think about how people tend to follow the news cycles, right? You know, the thought leaders will direct you over here, right? And mm -hmm. so everybody writes on it. Everybody does you know, their media pieces on it, they they dive into research on it. And everybody's discussing those specific things. What I'm trying to say is, is that when the herd is going that way, go the opposite direction. Now, it doesn't mean you ignore what they're talking about. It just means that your focus, your primary focus is in the other direction, looking at what else is going on. And that it's a good it's a good exercise in getting ahead of things and also staying situationally I call it geo strategically situationally aware of what's going on globally uh, and and it gives you kind of a, an idea of where the herd's going to go next right mm -hmm. and sometimes you can see how it is that they're being intentionally diverted and why right because there's some there's you know that's all part of the nature of warfare right and uh, is 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 diversion and deception so does that answer your question oh yeah i mean in this era who can really you know question that <laughs> but <laughs> not the truth but i think that's something that when it comes to you know people in the analytical world it should be always a constant reminder in many ways because there's always things that other people aren't focusing on. And that's usually, that can be some of the most interesting things. You know, if, if it's just the flavor of the day or the news item of the day, I mean, that's just today, but it could be completely outdated tomorrow, or it could evolve into something even much different than what the people today could have 
ever considered. So yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, you know, when you go through things, um, I know we've, we talked about what, um, what, you know, some of the things what we would like to discuss, which we're going to look at what's going on in central Asia, because there's been some big events happening, impacting the world of geopolitics, foreign affairs, great power competition, um, you know, stuff that is impacting us both abroad and at home. And particularly the recent announcement that the U.S. is going to withdraw from Afghanistan. There's a lot of ways to look at that. There's a lot of things that we aren't hearing in the national narrative about it that really, you know, in many ways should be talked about if such a big decision is going to be made. Um, what are some of the things you're looking at in that area? Well, you know, as you, as you know very well, one of, one of the things I often say as well is um, things rarely appear like they really are, meaning that they appear one way, but the reality of it may be completely different. And when you're looking at the complexity of the situation, regardless of where, where you're looking, um, particularly when you're dealing with anything in Asia uh, or uh, the Middle East uh, in general, uh, you've, you've got a lot of complexity. And with Afghanistan, Afghanistan in particular is, um, one, it has a lot of history, right? And a lot of backstory. And a lot of folks don't bother to really look at that backstory very much. Yep. It goes all the way back, I mean, in terms of Western civilization to Alexander the Great. And then, you know, you've got thousands of years before that too. And, um, mm -hmm. But keeping it compressed to uh, our lifetime, when you, when you look at what we are dealing with there, um, the question that people are fighting over is should we stay or should we go, right? It's kind of like that song, yeah. you know, maybe we should play it. Um, and there, there are, just at a cursory view, there are good reasons to stay and there are good reasons to get the hell out. Yeah. What, how you determine that really has to be based upon um, long-term strategic uh, reality. Hold on one second. And what is that, you know, what, what does that make up? All right, what are your goals and objectives in the short-term, right? In the midterm and long-term? How does that fit not just into a, Afghanistan specific strategy, right? But how does that fit into the broader strategic framework for that region and the broader region, right? The Middle East and Asia. And how does that fit into the relationships with those nations in those areas and beyond? And then it gets even more complicated, right? So what does it look like in terms of dealing with your allies and your friends, right? And those who are already involved with you. Uh, how does staying or going affect those relationships? Again, it, it can scale into complexity upon complexity very fast. And then from there, right, we, we haven't even touched how people view things here in the United States, right? 
And I think you brought up something earlier. What was that? It was two trillion, right? Wasn't it two trillion dollars? Right? We've blown there. Yeah. And a lot of uh, lives have been lost there. So, what are the implications domestically for the country? Right? How does it fit into our national interests uh, at home? Right? You always got to start home first. And then how does that fit into the broader foreign policy strategy and our goals and objectives in that short, mid and long term, right? Right. Um, you know, I, my perspective on Afghanistan is, is it, it's, it, let me just, let me just speak at a high level, right? You're probably hearing choppers coming over. We got plenty of them around here. Black Hawk heaven down here. Oh, um, so kind of appropriate. It's flying over right now. Um, so when you go into a nation state and you're fighting a conflict, okay. If you have clear goals and objectives, right. And those goals and objectives involve mitigating the threat and then getting out, that's a pretty simple equation, right? If your goals and objectives are nation building and culture change, transformative, we'll put it under transformative. Well, that's a whole nother ball game, right? Because that's going to take a long-term commitment. And how you do that and how you gain that out and think through that, again, is going to affect the domestic realities and your policies at home and how you deal with the public, right? It's going to, it's going to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to look at the, you're going to have to swat it out, right? What are the strengths and weaknesses of, of doing it, right? From a domestic point of view, a political point of view, a financial point of view, uh, a national security point of view, and then the broader circle of your foreign policy and how those all those other things fit into that as well. Yeah. So it, it, it's very complex. My idea on it was, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I went back and, and, and looked at the data on it when we first went in. But we had, we'd, we'd pretty defined clear goals and objectives going in. And that was to uh, mitigate uh, Al-Qaeda, right? And those elements uh, within some of the Taliban that had allied with them. Uh, and we really wanted to go after uh, Osama bin Laden, right? So that was that, those were clear goals. And even the people in Afghanistan understood that from a cultural point of view. You see, that's a whole other area we can get into is actually the worldview. Mm -hmm. um, that that kind of connects into the history of those areas. And we don't have time to dive deep, deep dive into that with Afghanistan right now, but I wanted to bring that up. We, we accomplished what we intended to accomplish. The They're very basic military goals. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Now, somewhere down the line, and, and I can tell you that the way things work in D.C. is that <laughs> it, somebody just didn't ad hoc decide that we were going to, to nation build. 
they just probably didn't want to tell people beyond the folks that were focused on phase one, which was, you know, the goals and objectives of dealing with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. So I think it was already in place uh, within the national security um, apparatus and within the core, probably within the JCS at the time and, and NSA and were involved with all kinds of laying groundwork for that, you know, for the long term uh, and the NSC, right? The council uh, and Langley and it goes on and on and on. But the thing is that it was probably a very, it was a small group of policy experts and uh, national security professionals uh, and, and brass that, that knew that that would be uh, part of a longer term goal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a dangerous game though, right? Oh, of course. It's, uh, if you're going to play a long game, like decades, you better have certain timelines and goals and objectives, you know, mm-hmm. this by a few years or that by a few years, or maybe this by 10 decades. Who does that sound like? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's, that's the thing we have to look at, but the thing is, if you don't have a clear strategy, you know, it's like, uh, one thing that always stays in my head and this is going a little outside the, the box. I remember the history channel did a lot of specials on ancient Rome and mm-hmm. I wish they would still do that. Yeah. But one of them had an episode I can't remember which Roman emperor. I think it was Trajan they were talking about, and they were going through a lot of problems. Mm. Trajan's wall, yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe it was, yeah. But they developed a strategy where they would take on the barbarians at multiple fronts using cavalry. And I forget what the strategy was, but I just remember whoever was presenting it, they're saying that they developed a strong strategy and despite the fact that they had, you know, limited capacities, but that if you have a good, strong strategy, you can succeed. And, you know, if you're going to go about Afghanistan with a strong, with a strategy, you, you know, you have to make sure that it's well-placed and you, you know what your immediate objectives and your long-term objectives. And you got to look at different points. We got military, you got the social, you got the economic stuff, which economics is a big issue in Afghanistan that many don't talk about. Um, uh, it's. Well, you've got alone. a lot of intersections also with organized crime. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, dark networks, right. In terms of like black, black markets, right. Mm-hmm. Because the opiates, um, when you're, and, and so it becomes a crossroads for a lot of nefarious things and that can become um quicksand very very fast uh especially when you consider the cold war years when we were working with the taliban to fight the soviets so you know what comes around often goes around especially in proxy warfare um and you know when you there's another thing a great I mean, for those that don't want to read, read a book on it, you could read the book, Charlie Wilson's War, or you can watch the movie and get kind of a watered down version of it. 
I think there were, there was good intent to fix something that we thought that we had not done right, which was, you know, we, we went in and we backed the Taliban and, and, and did well against the Soviets. Uh, but we kind of, and this is part of the problem I have with our entire foreign policy is that once we're done, we just, we're done and we just back out and screw them. And, uh, that is a very unwise approach. Um, I am emphatically against that. Now there's some things you can and cannot do, but you know, if you're going to build friendships and relationships, you need to build them for the long term. And that means commitment. Ooh, there's the commitment word again, right? Maybe we should commitment. play some commitments, right? commitment but also strategy and knowing why you have it that's right that's and I, right. I i sometimes wonder do they really realize why we're doing this or is it just for the heck of it i mean well sometimes, they sometimes always have a reason way. yeah right it may not be a good one right <laughs> but they always have a reason um now you may say it's reasonable or not uh oftentimes again I'm a, I'm a, as you know, I'm a big critic of what we do, uh, but I always back it up and, and it's constructive. Now, when it comes to Afghanistan, I understand because of the history of it, I mean, it's hard to hold that ground and it is, it is brutal territory. Um, you're dealing with tribalism and wherever you have tribalism and tribal alliances, um, you have confederacies of those you know, between tribes that are very liquid. Um, they change constantly. So that's a very complex environment to have to operate in tactically. And, you know, if you're looking at a strategic kind of uh, application uh, over the long term and what you're going to do there. So that said, um, you better know what you're getting into and why and have a damn good exit strategy now a lot of the, if you go back on the public facing st side of things going all the way back to the bush administration obama took heat for from it too this isn't this is this is not a democrat or republican thing i mean there were there were people that were very um critical of of staying you know, I mean, it's a difficult proposition. I, I mean, this is where good intentions can, if you don't game it out, can really get you into a huge problem, a very expensive one and a very bloody one. Uh, the cost of, of it can be extremely high, and it has been there, uh, not only for, for our allies and ourselves, but for the civilian population. Um, but if you're going to go in, this is my, my, per, my perspective, all right? If you're going to nation build, my perspective is, is you go all in to do it. And you think through what it's going to cost. Or else you don't do it, right? Because you may be playing into your enemy's hands, meaning, you know, great power competition, right? Which is exactly what happened, right? Now it's a hot real estate because like that video that was shared, um, it's the only 
real estate, we have where we have a base that neighbors both of our big adversaries, China and Russia. And then, of course, you have the whole Pakistan and India stuff going on, and then Iran in the mix, and whoever else is there. And we don't have bases elsewhere in that area. Afghanistan is pretty much it, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, the question is, okay, from a, I don't like to use tactical here, but it is a tactical kind of approach. I mean, the, the shorter the term, okay, if, you're, if you want to establish a friendly nation state, let's say that that was the plan long-term, right? We're going to insert ourselves and be a fly in the ointment particularly with the BRI, right? Mm -hmm. If that truly was the plan, okay, then what are you doing when you're using half measures to go into nation build? Take the damn country over, stop playing games, and run it with a military provisional government until you have a couple of generations behind you that can actually run it themselves. Now, one, they either didn't understand the worldview and the corruption that's endemic there, which I highly doubt, right? They may have, they probably denied it and ignored it, but they knew it was there. Or three, they didn't have the will to do it all the way because of political realities at home and around the world, which means they got gamed and lured into the very trap that the Russians and Chinese wanted to use as narratives, right? And of course that plays out in our political system here, right? And it also plays out on the global scale with weaponized narratives and propaganda and disinformation. And quite honestly, I mean, it's a very clever mix because they aren't saying things that aren't true, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that one thing, <laughs> anyone who is critical of like, intelligence operations or foreign policy operations, they always like to refer back to what, you know, the type of stuff that was done during the Cold War. And as you know, everyone is saying we're in a Cold War 2.0, but I, I think it's kind of something else, but there's elements of it. Yeah, I agree. There's elements. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a Cold War, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I hear the same thing. I've got a lot of friends who are old Cold Warriors and I've learned a, a lot. And oftentimes they nail a lot of stuff, man. We should not ignore their wisdom and their experience. However, it's not the same thing. There has to be a way to combine both. And I mean, I think, you know, when you think about like 2001 era or the early 2000s and still now, I mean, people, the criticisms, I mean, anyone who just gets a degree in intelligence, you know, you hear about the criticisms of, the intelligence operations that, start, you know, from the 50s, 60s, 70s that we right. did, you know, like, uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, the whole concept of the Cold War was to do a, a series of proxy wars and put people in power to be our person. You know, there's the whole saying, like, he's a bastard, but he's our bastard. And I apologize if anyone doesn't like me swearing on, on the show. <laughs> right, I cuss all the time. It's okay. Oh, yeah. But I think we're... In many ways, we're returning to a concept like that. And I don't know if it's the same thing, but that is a reality. It's been going on for centuries or mm -hmm. millennia. I mean, it's the oldest, it's one of the oldest rules in great power competition. You know, I mean, it's, you know, whether it's the concept of 
client states, tributes, proxies, right. all that. I mean, right. They just, they just dress it up in new, new verbiage and yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, for, for like a country like Iran, that was like a bread and butter policy. Sure was. Had a lot, yeah. So that's for when it comes to Afghanistan, that's a very much of a reality that from a long-term policy that policymakers have to consider seriously. I mean, you know, it's not peaches and cream, but at the same time, you know, you have a great power competition that it's, you know, it's, it, you know, we've had many talks about this. this. This has been looming for a long time, but Afghanistan has that new life in terms of level of importance. And, you know, it's, you have the economic aspect because of raw minerals and someone I know, I, I can't remember his name has been talking a lot about the importance of raw minerals in terms of supply and logistics and access, because that's a great power competition aspect because of, um, you know, technology, chips, microchips, missile systems. These rare resources are, you know, impact the way we run ourselves and where yeah, it runs the whole, whole global manufacturing system. Yeah. Everything that you have is connected to that. I mean, if you didn't have it, you'd go back analog. And yeah. my generation is kind of like a mix between the analog and the digital. But the younger generations, they haven't got a clue. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's there's people younger who are familiar with it. But that, the totally different ways of life. And we've created a bit of a addiction to that kind of tech. And we're, I think, you know, we're really heading potentially with, you know, resource wars, which we've seen that in the past, and it's not always pretty, but, you know, it's the way how I think uh, societies have been conditioned to even think in that way. I, I think, you know, it, it really impacts the, um, you know, I guess that the way of thinking to dealing with that requires a level of honesty and awareness of what's going on. And I mean, I, I know you've touched on that a few times, but that's a concern in terms of importance. And Afghanistan has a lot of rare resources, which we know, like two, three trillion or even more. And, you know, possibly, possibly. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, I mean, rare earth elements, Sam, I don't know who you were talking about that always brings it up. It can't possibly be me. Um, uh, was I know, <laughs> well, maybe we should, you know, at some point, I, I would love to bring on a buddy of mine, um, James Kennedy, who is a real expert in rare earth elements uh, and, and mining in this area. Uh, in fact, I maybe we can get him on this week. I, I need to get a get a call in with him. I'm two weeks late on trying to get him on, on a conversation to catch up. But look, I mean, rare earth elements are not new, right? They're, they're not even all that rare. Where what, what's rare is large concentrations of them in a certain area, right? Uh, and, we, and, and, and again, I mean, if you look at history, this is nothing new. Uh, even, I mean, let's go back to World War II. Look at resources, like 
this the battle the war for the resources to fight the war right mm-hmm. um and that that was global i mean a lot of folks don't realize how much how many battles were taking place figuratively and otherwise in this hemisphere to secure important resources so that the war machine could be built maintained and sustained right well it's the same thing economically i mean right now um and this has been a problem you know dealing with china specifically china has they have two things one they have access to a lot of rare earth elements right they control the bulk of the market Uh, what they don't have, they have the facilities to actually refine them, right? Um, and that, that that is a very dirty process in, you know, in many ways. It can be very environmentally, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it can be toxic trying to get to them, right? Um, now there are ways of doing it right. The problem is in a market-based system, it's about, you know, that price point, right? And so it locks, there's not enough competition to be able to provide a lot of the stimulus needed to create new ways of obtaining rare earth elements and or uh, recycling them from our electronics our motors and you know lights and all that stuff so to your point afghanistan does have a significant amount of of rare earth elements i don't know if it's if it's in the trillions um i mean working with uh it was from a caspian report a video i'll send it to you at some point okay yeah i'd love to see that because i haven't i've been meaning i've been tracing it a little bit but I pulled back on Afghanistan for a while. So it'd be interesting to see what, you know, what the data is saying on it now. Now, of course, the DPRK is sitting on probably the largest concentration of rare earths in the world, which is a whole component of, of what's going on with, with North Korea, China, and everybody else. So I don't want to, I don't want to derail us in that direction, but let's just, let me just wrap up the rare earths on this yeah. again if we were going to stay there for long term right mm-hmm. we never would have let competitors right uh, particularly china put operations in there so the so when you hear people talk about well we need to be there to to stave off you know to have a a, a strategic point between china and the russians is bullshit Right. If that was the case, why are they on the ground? Why are you doing business with them? And they knew going in that the BRI, the six paths, as I call it, right, of the, of the Belt and Road, needed that north-south link. And that north-south link goes all the way from what we're fixing to get into in the next section, right, next part of this, right, from Pakistan links all the way in up to the to the russian border really you know on the north through the central asian plateau islamic republics right that's a big deal huge so my question right 
is okay if your cover story is that you wanted to be there because of china then prove it what have you done in your goals and objectives for that to actually be anything remotely close to the case because quite honestly they can't debate that because they know that they have no leg to stand on and they're not the only ones there okay they you used to hear right well we need to be there because you know we're right on we're right we've got Iran on the other side, we've got them hemmed in. Really? Then why are Iranian operatives working in Afghanistan? I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, it's all about money. That's, you know, we can wrap up Afghanistan right now and come back to it later at some point and do a deeper dive. But the bottom line really comes down to this, Sam. You know, we'll just cut to the chase, right? It's about who's making money on it. And it has very little to do with the nation state perspective. Those are covers. What it has to do with is that our people, our resources, our policies are being hoarded out to corporate interests. And those corporate interests are transglobal, transnationals, and they're all in bed together. It's like an orgy fest of money. And that's why we have blown so much money there and why so little change has occurred. Because if it was really about nation building, we'd be running it, just saying. Well, here's the question. What if they allowed it, that to happen for a, an X amount of time and, and then they decided to get in on the game? I mean, is that, is that possible? I mean, well, I mean, we could what if they took a different direction, you know, from here till eternity. But I mean, the fact is, is they didn't. So, I mean, I'm willing to have that conversation with you if you want to have it. But I mean, just from a tactically, you know, from a tactical or strategic point of view, it's kind of a moot point at this point. That's why I don't take any of their conversations on Afghanistan seriously. It's, it's why I was against, you know, I either get all in or get all out and they've already compromised themselves right what are you going to do kick the chinese out now well here, here's the thing i mean because it's been two decades now and let's say the first decade let's say that will that may not have been on their radar for a while i'm going to assume it wasn't too You're much very right? kind You're, <laughs> the diplomats coming out <laughs> but i mean he's a great because, diplomat by the way Thank you. But um, I think, uh, you know, first decade, it was all about just, you know, military stuff. And then the second decade, you have a rising China coming up. You have a new boss. You have Xi. You have the strategy coming out with the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, BRI, and that changes a whole lot of things. And I mean, people paid attention to that back then because I, I've dug stuff dating back to 2008, 2010, 12, all that. And they're like, you know, they're on the rise and they're looking at a lot of ways from economic warfare or geoeconomics to rise that way. And, you know, it's, it, the information was out there. And like you said, there's always money in the way to be made. And when things evolve, they get, you know, the tipping point. 
And then you have the reason, well, okay, now we have to go back to Kansas or something or whatever they want to call. Well, you know what, I, what people often say to me? You're too idealistic. And I, and, and, which is ironic because the very things I talk about that I actually stand on and stand by and say that we need to do, they'll use the language, right? But they actually don't buy into it. That, that means they're, they're just liars. And so I often say to them, well, I wouldn't have to be as idealistic as I am if you had a monochrome of actually falling through on the words that you pretend to be idealistic about, right? And that's a big deal when it comes to policy and credibility. And it shows the disconnect between policy and the words that make up the policy and the actions and the outcomes. And I can tell you, these are not stupid people, Sam. They knew exactly what was going to happen and what they were going to do when they went in there. So I don't mind being the maverick in this. I was with SecDev Mattis when he was in Secretary of Defense. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I don't agree with you. Get all in or get all out. Now, if it takes us 10 years of fighting to get to the point where we were at, we weren't fighting. That is a roadblock. That's obstacles. And that means they never intended. It's forever war because the PMCs are making the money. The large defense contractors are making the money. All these little contracting companies are making the money globally, mind you. And the large corporations, transnational corporations are making the money. They're eating that country. Now, there's a lot of folks that really care about the Afghani people. I do. I have a friend I talked to uh, just a couple of weeks ago who, who had a huge initiative there to try to transition them away from the opiates and you know, the, the poppy growing, right? Mm -hmm. And but the State Department talks a good game, but they're full of shit. Pardon my language, but I call it the way it is. And all it takes is a basic cursory view of their perspectives, right? Their dictates, right? Their directives and the outcomes thereof, which is why I stand against them in terms of that, because you, you can hide a lot of things, but over time, your lies, your obscuration, or your incompetence becomes obvious. And at this point in Afghanistan, it's obvious. I mean, it is a, again, all in, all out. We should probably yeah, the next fail on Afghanistan right oh. now and move on. Well, I, like I told you earlier, I really doubt we're leaving it anytime soon. I don't think so. so either. I think they're lying. I Too much I, money being made. Well, and that, and I think they're going to, I think at some point, the next stage of, I guess if you call it strategy or goals or whatever, I think that's going to be redefined at some point. It probably already has in many ways. But, <laughs> yeah. But, it depends on who's got the, got the checkbook, though. Yeah. And I mean, we're spending a lot of money already as, as it is. So, you know, it's going to be Christmas. So <laughs> if we're to, if we're to, you know, the next stage, like if, if, you know, that part of the region, 
I mean, you have what's, you know, our issues, our stuff going on in Afghanistan. You have the People's Republic of China. You have Russia. And then you have the whole India and Pakistan issue going on. Yeah, that's a big and, one. They're directly yeah. connected to the Pakistan thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the moment, I mean, really, I mean, our relationship with Pakistan is probably screwed at all. Would you, would you say that? Or, or is it just? Well, it depends on who has the checkbook. I, I mean, I hate to keep coming back to that, but it really is that. I mean, I know I sound like a broken record and I sound, you know, like uh, I'm trying to avoid the issue. The truth is, is they're corrupt as hell. They always have been. I mean, they did the same crap during the Cold War. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess there was a break where things, you know, seemed to be pretty good because Musharraf, uh, I can't even say his name. I'm so tired. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, he Musharraf. Was, uh, yeah, Musharraf, yeah. You know, he got a couple of great book deals out of that. I mean, made, I mean, made a lot of money on the lecture circuit and all that. I mean, again, it, there's the layer, which is the public layer. Right. And even that is duplicitous. And then there's the reality, right? The reality is, is behind the scenes, particularly in the clandestine world, right? Everybody is a frenemy, right? It is the ultimate adaptive confederacy kind of approach, right? It's very tribalistic, you know, but in a weird kind of way, right? In a very, you know, evolved kind of way, right? Because it's all about the money. Uh, in some cases, it's not, I mean, I'm kind of oversimplifying it, but when it comes to Pakistan, Pakistan has always been very complex. You know, um, they, they were considered an ally, um, particularly when India kind of went the direction of the Soviets, but it's kind of flipped, Yeah. you know, but again, at what layer, right? Again, I mean, if you got the top layer is the politics, right? Behind all of it's the business side of things, right? And then you've got the intelligence communities, right? And then you've got all the tribal groups, right? And all the factions. And um, there's a lot of games that go on. And most of what you see when it comes to the public light is a well sanitized, thought through cover story, to be honest with you. Even a lot of the guys that, you know, are writing books. I mean, the, it, part of that is out of necessity because it could mean people's lives, you know? Um, but when you look at Pakistan and China specifically, it's not a question of who's wearing the pants in that relationship, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, Pakistan needs a lot of development, right? And where we saw that as risk china saw that as opportunity that's because they had a long-term strategy for that's it. right yeah and they didn't rely on they saw the weaknesses in our market approach right and they exploited that you know he, they, they're brilliant you, you got to give the chinese credit they're very very uh clever they're cunning and they do their homework right so, and plus they're an ancient society, a lot older than us. But when you look at what they've done, particularly with the BRI in Pakistan, that gives them leverage against India, right? Yeah. So it's brilliant, right? 
so they can put pressure on that and it gives them not only an economic weight but a political weight and a strategic weight and having that corridor from china all the way to guador or guador right mm -hmm. is a huge huge deal for pakistan and much needed capital infusion because pakistan doesn't have a lot of oil you know, they're, they're very poor and they have a huge population. And that's one of the reasons why there are folks, right. To show you another side of things that are in favor of the BRI because in their minds, they think that if they have a more prosperous society, it's going to transform that society's worldview and that they will, you know, not have as many radicals. Well, it's a great idea if it was only true and all of history shows that that's not true. There are other things at play and that shows a lack of understanding of worldview. And we're not going to dive into that hole, but it, again, it has to be brought up in terms of dealing with Pakistan and it's not a unified worldview, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the Pashmurga, I mean, you've got all these different groups, right? Kind of operating on the periphery. And um, but what China really has done is they've solidified not only their land corridor, an air corridor, but also a sea corridor. Yeah. For, right? Yeah. For our listeners, uh, when you're talking about corridors and the BRI, um, you know, just so people, just to make yeah. sure people understand, uh, the BRI is the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a big strategy that the People's Republic of China implements worldwide, which is creating a large network. It's an attempt to recreate the old Silk Road and by creating economic free trade zones and infrastructures like transportation, whether it's highways, bridges, railroads and stuff, basically connecting all the dots um, from, you know, from China to all could go all throughout Eurasia or to Europe, to the Middle East, to Africa. And, you know, to give you an idea of why Max was talking about Gwadar, uh, that's part of a province called Balochistan, but that region itself has a local population that has, uh, they've actually been, you have supporters, but you also have um, factions that are actually fighting it. So there's a little bit of insta instability going on here. But in terms of the Chinese and Pakistani relationship, there's a... It's called the CPEC arrangement, which is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And that's an extension of the Belt and Road Initiative. And that is pretty significant in the sense that um, it brings in a lot of PRC resources into the region. And it's not exactly, you know, in terms of profits, it actually you know, when, in terms of uh, access to the ports and railroads, um, it's very more beneficial for the Chinese uh, when you look at the arrangement uh, versus the local governments getting any cut of the action of the profits. 
But what's interesting, I remember that uh, there's actually a force, like a CPEC force, if I recall from a video, where you have Pakistani troops raised, and it's a combination of Chinese and Pakistani troops that whose sole intention is to basically protect the area, basically to be used to countering threats and factions attacking it. Uh, am I missing anything on that? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, it's smart. It, 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 the Romans used to do very similar things. It's very Romanist. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's, but even before that, I mean, it's, if you go back to the Han dynasty, I mean, it's kind of what they did when they chewed off little pieces of, of Mongolia. Right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a smart move. Um, what I think the problem can winds up being is that wh while they're doing that, right. Um, they're basically buying off the, the Pakistani military, right? And business leaders and political, you know, movers and shakers, um, which is clever. It's cunning. Um, they are trying to create, again, you know, go back to Wei Chi. Um, they want their protected circle, right? So they're creating that. And, you know, where we, the narrative is that we are just a bunch of barbarians that go and bomb every place, right? Um, they're using that, right, to go in peacefully, right, to build up places for people that, you know, in a lot of ways are very disadvantaged, um, economically depressed, um, and need help. So you've got that, the, all those conditions within Pakistan, and you have a large population, a very young population as well, and you know, when you have a lot of youth, uh, high birth rates, and you don't have a lot of opportunity, well, I mean, that provides a, a, a problem for yeah. radicalization, right? And that is an area, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that if there's an area where the United States and China do have um, mutual interests, as do the Russians right, and Europeans, uh, is radicalization of islam uh, yeah and if that, i recall there's problem. been yeah if i recall they've had some partnerships uh revolving around that if i recall yeah and yeah so i mean it's it's it, again that's where it gets into the complexities no relationship think about a personal relationship right with somebody no relationship with another individual is super simple we're all very complex individuals we're all very unique and we have strengths and weaknesses and and things that you know uh irritate others and things that you know they, they, that they have that irritates us and you know then you've got personality conflicts and you've got mutual interests and then corruption can get in you know you've got all kinds of other right so apply that in a way to nation states because what is it that I always say? What, you remember, remember the phrase? What is it? As it is for nations, so too it is for people. Oh, you got it backwards, though. But yeah. it, it, it works both ways, right? It, that's a great thing about it, right? So in my dyslexic moments, I get it backwards and it still works. That's why I like using it. it makes the people me sound first. Smart. That's how I remember it. <laughs> yeah, it makes me sound clever. It's all, uh, it, uh, yeah. Anyway, appearances can be deceiving. So, um, 
<laughs> so, but as it is for people, so too it is for nations, right? Because what are nations made out of? People. And nations take on characteristics, right? And we call those characteristics culture, right? And that makes up their society. And it's, you know, it's easy for people to want to put other people into boxes, right? Oversimplify, right? Or project on them what they don't like or whatever. Same thing with nation states. So the complexity is immense and things can change, right? Um, and so even though I'm harsh on stuff like earlier, I sound very cynical, right? On the other hand, this is the complexity of me in dealing with these issues. I understand the, the, the sides. I understand all the sides. As much as I hate to admit it, I'd probably be a pretty decent diplomat if I went that way because of that. I, as you know, I don't like the word diplomacy. Um, I leave it to people like you that are really good at it because I'm not. I don't think so. But again, Sam, you know, when you look at Pakistan, you have a lot of tribalism. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to find a way to bring that culture together. And it's difficult. And so you really can't blame their leadership for wanting to develop the country and taking China up on things. I mean, that's where China's strategy is brilliant. And, you know, quite honestly, regardless of their intent, it is having some positive impacts in some areas, albeit, right, um, it comes at a cost. I think and that's that, where long-term thinking comes in because I think, yeah, I think the people in Pakistan look at it from that angle. I have a feeling. Well, and that's the problem with getting into what's going on in China specifically in relationship to this. Um, being that they are becoming very belligerent, they've jumped out of their narrative and out of their strategy and they're reactive now. Mm -hmm. It's hurting them. It's fractured their whitewash. It's coming off. So you're seeing what's really behind a lot of it. Now, there are a lot of folks that would beg to differ, right? But what do you think? I mean, how, how do you see them acting towards people that push back on them? Are they not like a bully? It does in many ways. You've, you've seen from their, the way they comment and they act. But, you know, it's like what you're talking about, a lot of the certain comments made about them about the COVID virus and all that, and then just other stuff regarding the Uyghurs and even with, um, you know, tensions with Australia, which is interesting. I've been covering that for a, a good while, actually. Yeah, we needed to have a long talk on that, too. <laughs> yeah. Sooner than later, I'm afraid. I agree. But... um with the way they react to when they're being pushed back that way. Um, it kind of tells you one thing um, because, you know, for a long time, you know, I've always heard that the Chinese and the Russians are always trying to wing themselves off the Western liberal economic system and basically create their own block basically. And yet, you know, and their actions have been reliant on that. You know, it's like they say, you know, the world runs on Dunkin' Donuts. The U.S. has been Dunkin' Donuts. I've been saying that, you know, 
And I love Dunkin' Donuts. I haven't had it in ages, but I used to enjoy them. Yeah. But um, you know, they've they too have been reliant on the U.S. being the Dunkin' Donuts. And then you know, if the U.S. is a bit unstable, this is how they're reacting. That's an interesting thing observation to make because they're reliant on the U.S. acting a certain way, which we've talked about. But this way is has not been. The way we're seeing now the last few years has been countering what they're accustomed to. And so they're reliant on the U.S. in that capacity, even though they won't admit it, probably, because they've done every little thing to be less reliant. Um, you know, well, in some ways, can you blame them? I mean, really, can you blame them? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if you're in their position, sure. I mean, that's, you know, they 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 want their currency to be used more regularly and have transactions made conducted in it and a lot of other things. And I mean, they have their sphere of influence and their ancient sphere of influence, which is, you know, they want to go back to it. And that's, that's an even bigger conversation. Yeah. We, we probably ought to stay away from the, imperi- the, the, the Imperium rising. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And I, I, again, that's that's part of that complexity that I was talking about that you know so well, because, um, you know, if things were simple, we'd live in utopia. That, that's why people want to oversimplify things so they can live in a pretended one. And it, that's why it never works. And that's particularly the case when you're dealing with geostrategic realities um you know where pakistan is concerned and what china's doing i mean i mean i'd have done the same thing if i was beijing oh yeah because they want to connect a lot of areas they want to bring it back to what they perceived as being great and they whatever measure is necessary but one question is the are they did they ever think about the consequences or the impact long-term wise, because they had to anticipate that at some point there's going to be blowback to some of their tactics with, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative with whether, you know, taking over, you know, strategic assets in other countries by, well, you know, building in and stuff. And then you have Africa, which is a big race to take over, but, you know, I mean, there, that's, do they anticipate those kind of consequences or are they just, I mean, I don't see them just running with it. I think they've thought it through at least. Oh, I'm sure they have. I mean, again, I mean, particularly the Chinese and the Russians, I mean, they're really all the nation states. I mean, here it's a little more complicated because of political factions and, you know, in, in a different way, the politics of the country, but you still have that there as well. It's just kind of under the surface, but, not to the degree that we have it in our system in a more obvious way, but um, we're more transparent. Yeah, right. More naked. Um, uh, but, you know, what they do, there's a calculus. And you can say that they think through it and they game it out, and they do. Um, but to your point, which is where I think you were kind of leading me anyway, when you think it historically, um, every empire 
has thought the same damn thing. They're going to be the one that pulls it off and rules the world and to create their own utopia and their own image. And I mean, I don't have to be a genius to look at history and ask everybody that's listening to this or watching this, how well has that worked out? What does that always lead to? It leads to, you know, you, that, that's when you, when you come in to what human nature is. And that's something I think the founders of the Constitution knew very well. And yes. that was the age of enlightenment where they studied all the classics and they knew that stuff inside out. And those were times where people could actually think about it without having all these distractions too. Well, to, but, to, yeah, you're right. The speed, the access to information, all that. Yeah, it's a great yeah. point. Yeah, but I wouldn't have come to my attention if I hadn't studied international affairs undergrad. You know, one of the requirement classes was um, oh, not human nature, but uh, theory of international relations or international affairs or something. And they, they had you read all the philosophers like Hobbes, Locke, and, you know, all those guys. So, and you would have long class discussions about it. And people didn't think about the importance of those classes back then, but now, you know, hindsight, I'm like, I would have like paid more attention and read more of those guys while I had the chance, because I think people forget that element when it comes to thinking about things like statecraft or dealing with uh, geoeconomic strategy or geopolitical strategy, or if you're just dealing with competition and you have to focus on securing, you know, X, Y, Z, knowing human nature come, okay. is very important. And going back to what you were saying, you have to look at how people are going to respond and be fairly realistic. Because if you're going to go back to utopia land, you got to see how are people going to respond if they have that perceived utopia? Will they really be happy? Will they just be too dumbed down and they can't, um, you know, be, you know, where they can't feel the need to be content? Or will it be like that movie Idiocracy where they have no idea of their background or, you know, they get a degree at Walmart or whatever that place was. And that's the, that's a worst case scenario. And, you know, but people, you know, but history has shown when too much of an idea is being presented, the people start to respond. You know, if it's, if it's that invasive and the human rights, and that's something to really look at, you know, I mean, it's, we hear a lot about that, but what exactly does that mean? And, you know, we well, hear, you a lot hear about it in China because they see that as an impediment they, in their vision of, of utopia there, there, it's not focused on human rights, which is why the collapse of human rights in terms of its original context here in the West and the perversion of it, uh, in, in many cases, uh, and the co-opting of it for weaponized purposes um, is suiting their narrative in China. They're, they're pointing to us and going, see, this is, this is chaos, right? We're going to bring order. Of course, what, what people don't want to talk about is how involved they are in 
stoking those fires, right? Oh, yeah. But you're right. I mean, again, the, the, the problem is, is that, again, a nation and nations made of people. You ever met a person that sees the world exactly the way you do? No, no. And one should assume that they do. I mean, that's right. That's so why I, you talk how to do you, How can you have a utopia when utopia is subjective? Everybody's got a version of what their utopia is. And that gets into, if we move the word utopia out of the way and get into hegemony, right? Right. And you start looking at where that is in terms of the players now. And you look down line and you can see that there's a train wreck coming, right? And it always happens. I mean, it's not a new age when it's the same old thing over and over and over, right? But they always, I mean, it's going to be this wonderful time, you know, everybody gets glossy eyed and, you know, we're all going to live in peace. And, and I wish that was true because I hate wars. I love people and I hate seeing suffering and injustices occur, but I'm also realistic. And I have to say that the trend lines right now, you know, are all heading in the direction and who are friends right now, when you look at their worldviews, and let's say they're successful, and let's say the, that America gets pushed out of the world, right? Oops, I almost pushed my mic out of the way. You know, let's say they, they push us out of the world and get what they want. How long do you think that's going to last? How long do you think their utopia is going to last? I don't think it will last very much long. No, it's... And, and they'll be all armed at the teeth. Well, here's a question. If they go for a utopia aspect, worldwide or carving the block? Because that's something I, I've been sensing for a while that we're going back to a polarity issue and a block issue. Is it just within a block? Like, and that everything about the Belt and Road going outwards and all over is just a ploy, but their main focus could be, you know, that, you know a certain area of focus. Well, let me answer that by asking you a question. Okay. Um, let's just take the last hundred years, the 20th century. Are there any times that that was done before with big powers? What, carving a block? Like voluntarily or involuntarily? Either way. Let's say both. Give me examples of both. Well, yeah, at the end of World War II, we, we did create, you know. Mm -hmm. What was created? Iron Curtain. And what else? The, you're talking about uh, the Berlin the Middle Wall. East. On the Middle Okay. Just as part of the example, they carved up the world, right? Yeah. So the victors go the spoils, right? Yeah. So. We did that in the first World War II. <laughs> right. So. Again, there, it's, it's really important to understand historical patterns. It is important to understand historical patterns as it is to understand human patterns, your own and sociological and psychological patterns and behavior patterns of others in whatever configuration, right? Because that's going to help you understand the nation states and 
yourself, right? And you'll be able to learn from both. Now that said, carving up things, right? Dividing things up. Well, here's the pie, right? You know, Aunt Betty's going to get, you know, a little bigger piece because she's cooking the pie the next time, right? And if we give her a bigger piece now, maybe she'll give us a bigger piece down the line, right? So everybody has these ways of doing things to, you know, kind of get a bigger piece of the pie. I mean, everybody's playing strategy and there's a game board and everybody's, but, you know, that's not new. And it never is. But it's always talked at. It's a talked about as being new. That is the lie that's constantly perpetuated in every single generation. It's new because it's not part of the narratives of the previous eras. We haven't talked about stuff like that since probably the Cold War. Well, it's new to them that don't know that it's old. <laughs> <laughs> and, and unfortunately, in every generation, uh, that tends to be the majority of people. And uh, that's why it's so important doing what you're doing and what we're you know, doing here in our first time having these conversations, which I think, you know, probably should be more consistent. Uh, I'm up for doing it. It'd be keep me sharp. It keeps me sharp to do this. Uh, and I hope it, you know, helps sharpen you some because I get pretty dull. Um, so, you know, Again, understanding those patterns is how I actually observe and do what I do. I may not, I may not be the, the brightest candle in the candle shop. I might not be the brightest light, right? But what I do know is that one, I try to learn from the micros and the macros in my own individual life. I try to learn from others. And part of that means I have to see the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly. It's the same way I approach policy, strategy, looking at nations and how these things come to play together. Going back to Pakistan, I mean, it's why I can sit and say, you know, I mean, there's a lot of complexity there. What would I do? You know, I mean, sometimes the best thing you can do is try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Absolutely. But to do that properly means you're going to have to actually understand them, their history, their experiences, their worldview, and what, how that has shaped them for the present and how that may affect them for the future, right? Mm -hmm. um, Pakistan uh, and, and Iran, they're being pushed closer together, right? What does that mean for the broader region? Now that China has done a big deal with Iran, right? What is what? It, what are the narratives? What's the narratives? What are the narratives that are being used in the East to bring people together? Right? You know, I think you know where I'm going with this. Have they been used before? And what did it look like? And how did it work out? And I'm talking about over thousands of years, because if you look at all the empires, there's one big, big, big pattern. This is the big, uh, bad empire, and we got to muster our forces together. Well, there's that, but there's been a consistency of something that a lot of folks overlook, and that is all the versions of the Silk Road every single time. 
So there is a historical pattern that when you see those things line up, you can't assume it's going to be exactly like it was before, but there are certain things that you can see that are historical realities that play out. The CCP plays out a lot of the stuff from the Han dynasty, probably because behind the scenes, I mean, most of them are Han and that's their cultural ID. And even though they're atheists, they still have their metaphysical and historical realities from a cultural perspective. So when you look at that and look at how they make moves and then look at Iran, look at their narratives, how are they approaching things? And what's the history? Well, Iran has a long history. It was not Iran, it was Persia. So what are the Persians? How are the Persians and the Chinese so close? How did that relationship work? You know, are there any things similar going on now? Are there narratives going on now that are similar to what, we're go- what was going on then? How did those alliances across all those buckets in society align to create the strategic reality of that day, right? And that gives you some insight in some things. And that's precisely the, because here in the West, we have such a compressed view of time. We're very myopic and we're very narcissistic culturally. And that's part of that's youth. Part of it's just pride and arrogance and ignorance. But that compression of time blinds people to the patterns of other nations and even in their own lives. So what does it mean that you've got these relationships with Pakistan, with China, with the Central Asian Plateau, or Central Asian uh, Islamic Republics in the Plateau, you know? Mm-hmm. What does it look like that a new relationship, quote unquote, has been formed with Turkey and China? Have we seen this before? Like maybe with the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, uh, right. there's a lot of interesting resemblances. That's right. And so when you start looking at the, how the things are framed, right? We, that we put it down on the list because we probably, we need to really have a conversation on the Eastern narrative because no one's really having that conversation to the point where it really links it back to historical precedent the way it needs to be. Um, nothing is new under the sun. It's only rerun and repackage, but it's not, it's never the same. It's always like, and that's where it, gets to people where they see a pattern, right? But they don't have the context for that pattern to sit in and then they get gamed into being useful idiots, right? Or they make faulty assumptions because of fear and confusion or just not understanding, right? Um, But what you're dealing with, with China, Pakistan, Iran, from a strategic point of view, now we've gone a long ways today. so. We probably yeah. need to do another conversation where we pick up from this point on, right? Yeah. And really dive into the ME and what and what this relationship looks like and what that can play out to be. And we probably should do it sooner than later because of how tensions are building there. Yeah. Because it's very fragile. We may come back next our next conversation and wind up having to discuss 
you know, some stuff that we don't really want to have to discuss, which is full out conflict. Yeah, there's a lot of things. If I brought it up right now, we'd end, we'd end, we'd end up having another two-hour conversation. <laughs> right, right. And you know how we are. So maybe we should just plan that for, you know, maybe get another one in the beginning of next week or something. To, yeah. So we continue that's... this. I hope we've laid some groundwork for people, you know. I think it is some good groundwork. I think it's going to help a lot of people think and understand where to start to understand what the events that have been happening for several years and how it relates to what's happening now. Um, I think we have good groundwork because there's a lot of key things that we don't hear in today's media or just by experts. It's all the basic stuff. And maybe it's because they're still playing the game, whatever it is, or they're figuring out what camp they're going to be in. Uh, who knows? But I think there's, um, I think there's a lot more to talk about, but it is a good groundwork. Very excellent. Sam, I appreciate you having me on. And I think, you know, I'd be up for doing this on a regular basis so we can dig, dig deep with some folks and it'd be fun. It, it's yeah. a good break for me. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not something you see a lot. And I think it's important, especially with, you know, today's environment, people need to see serious stuff and it's very important. But, uh, well, you buy the, you buy the black rifle and, and ship it to me in cases and I'll stay on here as long as you want. I had to get a plug in for these guys. I love these guys, man. It's a veteran owned company, black yeah. rifle coffee company. These guys are awesome. I'll have to try them out. I've, I've, I've heard about it, but I haven't, I've yet to, I've been sticking with this Italian roast stuff that. See, there we go. This is what we do, right? This every time, folks, this is what you've got to understand about Sam and I. I mean, we could, we could plan on doing like a 30 minute talk and it winds up five hours, right? <laughs> so you guys are going to have to help direct us at times as much as I have to have him direct me. And, and I, and then sometimes I have to help him a little bit, but really it's more him having to direct me because I mean, I can go on and on and on. And, you know, I mean, you see, I just said, you know, oh, we've got, got a black rifle and we, we started a conversation. We could go on for two hours talking about the, you know, the strategic realities of the areas where coffee's grown. Yeah. Ironically, I've written about, which is a whole nother thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be intrigued. I'd be intrigued. So, yeah. But I think on that note, we're going to end this session and thanks for being on here and we'll we'll definitely get on for another one very very soon and it's my pleasure brother and we got a lot of a lot of big things to talk about and i will definitely have to um because the last episode was three people and i think it's good to have two people but you know i, I think you know going forward it'd be great to have like you know do three people again and maybe have you on also on with with that with another person and talking about another topic um well, that's fun. probably yeah because i think you one thing people don't know about max is that he's very polymathic so he could talk about a wide range of things and he's done a lot of research on stuff where he can talk about a lot of things so and he can and it makes me sound smart i know. actually i actually didn't remember i told you i didn't know what that word meant i had to look it up i thought i'm like polymathic i'm not even good at math 
Like, you know what? I, I was thinking the same thing at one point, and that was always a term that for a while, every few years, I'd revisit. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but why call it that name? I mean, right. not, you know, but, you know. See, I got him to do it again. You see? You see? I just see, pushed him this is This is the master 20 here. minutes later, this we're talking the about polymathics, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to shut up, man. Sam, go ahead and take us out. Huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> On that note, we are officially going to sign off here. And I want to thank you all for listening to this long discussion and a little getting off trail here and there. But I think it's all worth it. We have a good discussion, a lot of things to ponder, a lot of big things to consider. And I want to thank you all for listening and taking the time. And um, if you want to check out the website, uh, fulcrumglobal.us which is part of the Society for Defense and Strategic Studies at American Military University. Um, so we'll be back. We'll see you guys next time. And we look forward to being part of your viewing or listening perspective, because this will be in both video and podcast format. Uh, so, and it'll be posted very shortly. So once again, Max, thanks a lot. Anytime, brother. I look forward to it and appreciate what you're doing, man. Oh, Making thanks. a big difference. Thank you. Yep. Till next time. <laughs>